Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Um, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Galatians. Galatians is where we will be, jumping into Galatians chapter 3. Brought some great toys to, to have fun with this morning here as we enter into the text. So Galatians chapter 3. Um, now, last week we were in Galatians chapter 2. I know, brilliant for this morning. Um, we were in Galatians chapter 2, and one of the things we were studying was this, um, this, this idea that Paul is talking about with the works of the law or um, the new life that is in Christ. And Paul is going to continue to build on this idea of new life and build on this idea particularly of how do we experience new life in our lives today. And there's two key words to the passage that we're going to read this morning. We're going to be studying um, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18, with a special focus on the first 14 verses or so. Uh, but there's two words that, that come in these verses that are really, really important for our study today. The first word is spirit. Spirit, okay? Um, the second word is promise. And you'll see that as we read it. But even just before we read the text together... Be listening for those two words as we engage the scripture this morning. Spirit and promise. Spirit and promise. Um, and we'll talk about that in just a few moments here. So we ended last week and we went to that just amazing passage, uh, you know, where it says in verse, um, verse 19 and 20, uh, where it says, find it, for through the law I've died to the law so that I might live for God. Living is central to Paul's theology. And then he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then he says, if I, um, then he says, the life, yep, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And he's going to continue to address these Galatian believers who have been told, you need something other than Jesus to be made right with God. That's who he's addressing. He's addressing people whom he loves, people whom he has poured his life into, who are tempted to think that they need something other than Jesus to make them right before God. And they need something other than God to give them power for living. So would you stand with me? And let's read together this morning from Galatians chapter 3. Jumping right in. Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has hypnotized you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was vividly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete in your flesh? Did you suffer so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Now, just as Abraham believed God and it was credit to him for righteousness, then understand that those who have faith 
are Abraham's sons. Now the scriptures saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. For all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. Because it is written, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based upon faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, everyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Brothers, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to even the human covenant that has been ratified. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to his seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years after, does not revoke a covenant or a promise that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. And God, this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear hearts to set upon your truth, and to learn again what it means to live by your grace and by your spirit, and not by our own works, our own accomplishments. We thank you, God, for meeting us here today, wherever we've come from this week, uh, whatever joys, whatever struggles we have had behind us, and whatever things that might cause us anxiety or worry in front of us, God, we give those things to you. We thank you, God, for your undying love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, we're talking about faith, we're talking about the Spirit, we're talking about promise today. And as we start, I want to start to build something that our kids have absolutely loved over the years of growing up. Um, one of the favorite toys in the Cobb household growing up uh, was Sodor. Do you know Sodor? Maybe not. Do you know, this will make sense, I have to find the right, the right one here, because I brought several, that's not him, that's not him, where is he, there he is, if you don't know Sodor, do you know Thomas the Tank Engine, yes, okay, good, we have some Thomas the Tank Engine people, how many of you, your kids, or maybe your grandkids, maybe nieces, nephews, maybe you played with Thomas the Tank Engine growing up? All right, maybe you watched all those great um, British shows that kind of went on and on and on, and I absolutely loved them. We had a great time with those when our kids were young in particular. But this morning we're talking about power, all right? We're, we're talking about power, and we're talking about the Spirit. And um, the way I want you to think about this, the way I want us to think about this this morning is if you're building a, I don't want that one, is if you're building a train track. And if you're building a train track, you're going to go ahead and you know, have it go around in a circle, and then you're going to eventually need an engine, right? Because you've got to have something to power the train that you are hoping to, 
to, to bring. And so we've got Thomas here. I have a couple other ones. Um, I always liked Gordon. Gordon was one of my favorites. Um, so I brought him just because I like Gordon. Um, but I brought some other things. I brought along like a, like a, this, whatever you call that, a, a thing that holds stuff, right? Um, <laughs> very technical this morning. Um, I brought along a troublesome truck. You know, I don't know if you know the troublesome trucks. They, they like to, as you're going down the hills, they like to go back and forth and make problems for the engines and stuff like that. Um, some people like Edward, they, they have their own tender, you know, their coal thing that, that allows them to, to get coal in a little bit better way. We, we brought a, uh, a petrol car or a gasoline car here, if you will, and we brought another kind of a, kind of a caboose, if you will. It'll be our caboose for this morning. So I want us to look at this passage with the train metaphor in mind. And why would I say that? Well, we're talking about power, and we're talking about the Spirit. And I want to liken what Paul is going to say. Analogies are imperfect, but I want to liken what Paul is going to say to the engine, to the engine that drives everything we do as the people of God. When we come into faith relationship with Jesus, God gives us an engine, okay? Now, we already have a train, we already have an experience here, but God gives us an engine. And the purpose of an engine is to pull the car. The, the purpose is to give power to all the things that come behind them. Now, it's important to have cars behind your engine, because if you don't have cars behind your engine, you don't have a train. This morning, my son and I were driving on the way in here, and there was a train that was pretty much stopped at the tracks, and I went oh no, I really hope we can get through and we don't have to go around. I didn't see the engine. The engine was on the other side, but clearly the engine was not pulling at the time uh, at which we were coming through. They were doing, who knows, something else. But I, I want you to understand, the Spirit is like the engine. Without the Spirit to pull us, to guide us, to lead us into what God has for us, what we end up having is a train without power. And when we have a train without power, it sits still. So with this image in our mind, let's look at the first couple verses of Galatians here. It says this, verse 1, You foolish Galatians. Now you may be thinking, you know, Paul's like insulting them. He's, he's saying foolish to them, not to insult them, but because they're not acting in accordance with what they know. They've already heard the message of the gospel. They've heard who Jesus is. They've heard what comes by trusting God and God alone through his son, Jesus. And he says, you guys are acting foolish because you're, you're essentially getting rid of everything I have taught you. I, I, he, 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 so he you know, goes very, uh, very straightforward. He calls them foolish. But he's not insulting them. He wants them to act in accordance with their understanding of the gospel. And he's going to begin these first few verses much like I may have or may not have heard as a kid. You know, rhetorical questions. Did you think that it was a good idea to shove your brother? Hmm, no. Uh, did you think it was, my, my parents would sometimes ask these rhetorical questions, helping me to see that maybe I am missing something. And maybe instead of them saying, you did this, through a rhetorical question, he could make his point very clear. And so he answers, or he, he writes to them several rhetorical questions. And he begins by saying this, Who has bewitched you? Who has hypnotized you? Remember this truth about Jesus. He was vividly portrayed as crucified. 
crucified. And you've heard this message. This is something that you have known. Paul himself has told these believers, there's only one way to be made right with God through trusting Jesus only. But in the course of time, and in the course of other people coming into their lives, their eyes have shifted up from being in Christ and in Christ alone to, well, maybe it's being in Christ and adding all these other caboose things to our life that makes us right with God. And Paul says, who has bewitched you? Who has allowed your eyes to glaze over? Um, another one of my kids' favorite movies growing up was the movie Jungle Book. It has great music. It's just fantastic music. And there's one character in Jungle Book, and it's Ka. And Ka is a python. And one of um, Ka's goals is to lull this young um, Jungle Book boy, uh, Mowgli, to sleep because pythons like to eat things. So, so there's this song even. It's a musical, if you didn't know. If you haven't watched it, it's a musical. Just know that going in, but it's great music. You have this snake who is singing to a kid trying to lull him to sleep and lull him out of being aware of what reality really is. And it's kind of like what Paul is saying here. Who has lulled you out of the real reality that is in Christ? Who has bewitched you? Who has hypnotized you? In verse 2, we find a really important reference. He says this, I only want to learn this from you, did you receive the Spirit by means of the works of the law or hearing with faith? Now, in verse 2, it's the first time that he has mentioned the Spirit. And that's going to be really, really important for many chapters left to come. Because um, one of the things about Galatians 5 in particular, it's heralded as this chapter that talks about here's what you get with the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the effects of the Spirit working through the human heart. And here, for the first time, he's mentioned the Spirit in his letter. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He, he's essentially asking him, how did you get this ability to live with and for God? How did you get this promise of God? Was it because you did something or was it because of receiving by faith what God has done for you. Now, the Spirit is, is a person, that the Spirit is God himself, who is promised to people. We can go back to places like um, the prophets in Ezekiel 36, or in Joel chapter 1, or in Jeremiah 31. All, all these prophets talk about and foretell about how the Holy Spirit is going to come because it says it this way in, in the prophet Ezekiel's writings. This is back in the earlier part of the Bible. And in Ezekiel 36, God promises to cleanse the nation of Israel for seeking other gods in their life. Because God has called them into a relationship with him. A relationship by faith, but also giving them, hey, here's my teaching, walk in it. And Israel failed to do that. They, they went and they pursued their own things. They, they made other gods, lowercase g, in their life. But God says to them in Ezekiel, he promises to place a new heart and a new spirit within them. He says it this way, I will place my spirit within you and I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So the spirit was to be the way in which God's people could live in right relationship with God. 
the way that he could live in right relationship with God and have the power to do what God calls them to do. He is this promise of the new covenant. And he says in the next verse, you know, the end of chapter, or verse 2, going into verse 3, he says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? Are, are you going to find completeness and wholeness in your life because of something you yourself can do? And he says, he's asking this question, and the answer is obviously no. Because the Spirit is the promise. The Spirit is the gift of God to the follower of Jesus. And the Spirit makes way for all of the other things of God to fall in proper alignment. For Paul, this doesn't make sense. Because if, you, if the Spirit only comes by faith, how will finding your identity in what you do for God complete you? The flesh or the human power to, to follow the things of God, cannot do what the Spirit does. It's like if you try to um, put a, a, a tender, okay? A, a tender is a part of a train that feeds the coal. We're just going by way of analogy. This is imperfect. But it's like if you try to power your engine with coal, but you don't actually have an engine to drive you, all right? He's essentially saying you can't drive with a second car. You can only drive with a first car in line. The flesh or human power cannot do what the Spirit does. Growing in holiness, he says, must involve the Spirit. And so verse 4, he goes to another question. He says, did you suffer so much for nothing if in fact it was for nothing? So apparently there was some suffering that had occurred here, but it wasn't suffering that occurred for nothing. It was maybe suffering uh, that occurred because some, someone had followed Jesus and they had been shunned by their family. Or they had taken a stand within their workplace and that didn't go so well. Or they had spoken about what Jesus the Messiah had done to rescue them within another context of their family and they were pushed to the side. They had experienced different sufferings and they'd like to go back to less suffering. But Paul says, if in fact it was for nothing, suffering is never nothing in God's eyes. But verse 5, he comes to the fifth question. So then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did you receive all these miracles in your life and did you receive the work of God because you did something by the works of the law, by trying to find your identity in things that are other than the gospel, or did you do that because of God's redemptive work that comes through the Spirit in your life? Now, in the next couple of verses, he's then going to contrast what does it mean to believe God's promises and works of the law. And so verses 6 through 14, you can kind of look at it as 6 through, um, six through 9 are talking about receiving God's promises and living by God's promises. And then verses 10 through 14, if you want to block this out, talks about how you can't, ex um, how you can't experience um, the work of God by just doing good things. Verses 6, or verse 6, enters a new person into this conversation now. And Paul is using someone with whom he was very familiar. 
he, he's using this example of Abraham, okay? Abraham, if you go all the way back to the early part of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, you, we're only a couple chapters in, you find this amazing story about a guy named Abraham. He's first called Abram, and then later he is renamed Abraham by God. But Abraham is a is an example that Paul uses because his Jewish counterparts will certainly know. They're probably arguing, Abraham followed God. You should follow God and find your identity in following God. In fact, Abraham was circumcised. You should find your identity in being circumcised, Gentile believers in Galatia. But, Ab but Abraham has a story that goes much deeper than just when he was circumcised at the age of 99 years old. Abraham was a man who believed God. That's what it says in verse 6. Just as Abraham, he believed God. Now, what does it mean to believe God? To believe, the other word you could use here is trust. It's, it's this idea of you are putting all of your eggs in one basket. That is God. But the amazing thing about Abraham is Abraham was a guy who believed God, but he also really struggled to believe God. You, you enter his story in the end of Genesis chapter 11, and it picks up in Genesis chapter 12. Go ahead and turn with me briefly there. Genesis chapter 12, if you would. Abraham is a guy who just kind of a little bit comes out of nowhere in the end of chapter 11. We find out a little bit about his family, which is a whole other conversation for a whole other time. But we find out something really important at the end of chapter 11. Abraham and his wife, Sarah are unable to have kids, all right? They are unable to conceive. Chapter 11 of Genesis says, Sarah was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. And so even in chapter 11, it's setting us up for something that is very important in Abraham's story. And that is, how is he going to experience blessing from God that God is going to promise in chapter 12. Look with me, please, at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. Okay? So he's been promised a land. Now he's been promised a nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and treat you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God has said, hey, I'm going to give you a land. Hey, I'm going to give you people, all right? So to a husband and wife who are 75 years old and 65 years old, respectively, that's a, that's a crazy promise. Um, I'm going to give you people, and you're going to be a blessing. You're not going to be just a blessing to your people. In fact, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. You and I are here because God has been faithful to Abraham in giving a blessing to him and then to the rest of the earth. We'll talk about that in a little bit more. Um, but Abraham is just a normal, average guy. He's like me or you, right? But God comes to him. And, and I love that because one of the things it reminds me is that we may think we're average. We may think that we don't have a certain pedigree or a certain degree behind our name for God to want to use us. But he comes to Abraham at 75 years old and he says, hey, I want you to go out from your land and your relatives and your father's house and I want you to trust me. You don't know where I'm sending you. You don't know where I'm leading you. 
but trust me here. And here's what I will do. God comes to him. God initiates this covenant or this relationship with Abraham. He gives him a promise, but Abraham cannot see that promise. It's really tough sometimes in our life to be promised things that you can't see. There are things that even as people of faith today, we cannot see. Sometimes we sing it this way, and Lord haste the day when my faith will be sight, the old hymn writer says. There are things that we look forward to, being in the presence of God, living in a world that is not tainted by sin and rebellion and all the grief and the pain that exists here. But even as we look forward to that day, that day is a promise to us. Abraham understood a promise. He also understood what it meant to sometimes not walk in accordance with that promise. But he's a normal guy who's called to trust God and to engage him on this faith journey. And the, really the question, or one of the, the things going on in the Abraham story is, is Abraham has this choice. Am I going to trust God or am I going to try and do it my own way? Look at it this way. Uh, there we go. Um, you have Abraham. He's called Abram at this time. When he's 75 years old, he leaves Haran. All right, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Um, so you have this, this initial part of his story that, that God gives us in the text. Um, 11 years later, when he's 86 years old, in Genesis 16, 16, we find out that Abraham has a son named Ishmael. Now, the problem is this. Ishmael is a son born to Abram, but not by his wife, Sarah. So what Sarah and Abraham had done is they, they had essentially agreed, if I can't bear children for you, Abraham, Sarah actually comes to Abraham, take my servant, Hagar, the Egyptian, and have kids by proxy, if you will. Have kids through her so that we have an heir. But the problem is, is that's not what God intended. God intended to do an incredible miracle such that even Abraham and Sarah did not fully understand or fully trust most of that time. But we have Ishmael's born uh, when Abraham is, six, is 86 years old. So there's 11 years already there that they've been waiting. You come to age 99 in Genesis 17, verses 15 through 18, um, where God then comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham had gone, but I have a son. And God says, but I'm going to give you a son through Sarah, your wife of many years, your wife whom you have not been able to have children with. And it's through Sarah's son that I will bring my promises to fruition. Just think for a moment. You're 75 years old. God says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you um, a nation. And I'm going to make you a blessing to all people. But you come to 76 and 77 and 78 and 79 asking, God, when are you going to keep the promise. God, are you going to keep the promise? 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, so on and so forth. You take matters into your own control. You begin to live by your flesh. 86, 87, 88, 89, so on and so forth. I won't count it for you. 98, 99, God comes to you and he says, by the way, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And what, what happens is uh, Sarah overhears part of this conversation and she laughs. 
which is this, this just ironic thing because um, Isaac is born when Abraham is 100 years old. His wife's 90 years old, just crazy stuff. 100 years old, and the name Isaac means laughter, you know? So the baby comes out, and they just go, oh my goodness, uh, I didn't see that one coming. But here's a story of an average guy learning what it means to trust God. The ups and the downs. Sometimes when we read scripture, we go, man, Abraham is this just like incredibly holy dude. He totally had it all together, but his life was so messed up in so many ways. Because like us, he chooses sometimes to be driven to to drive his train, if you will, by something other than what God has promised. Abraham is so central to the story because I love it too. He's 75 years old. At 75 years old, many of us are looking to, all right, what does retirement look like if we're not retired already? What, what do the last days of my life look like enjoying life in Florida or enjoying life in Arizona, especially in the winter when it's really cold? No, no bitterness or anything like that towards those of you who travel. i jealous, maybe. Um, but we look to all these things in the latter part of our lives sometimes. And it's just at 75 that Scripture tells us God begins working through Abraham in a very, very special way. Think about it. Maybe you're around 75. What might God be calling you to in the latter parts of your life? Abraham in Galatians is being used as a type, or he's being used as an example of someone who believed God, and it was credit to him for righteousness. Because even though Abraham was not perfect, one thing he did do is God said, I want you to get up and I want you to leave your family, everything you know, everything you have experienced to this point, and I want you to trust me. And what did Abraham do? He gathered his stuff, he packed his wagon, or his donkey, or his satchel, and he got up and he went. There was obedience there to God's command, and there's this promise then that God makes in God's timing. The people who were trying to um, convince the Galatian believers, we'll call them Judaizers, um, they, they were trying to essentially say that Abraham is an example of what it means to be circumcised and engage in all these things according to God's word. But Paul is essentially going to make an argument here in verses 6 through 9 that it's really those, um, well, it's not really those, that there are essentially two types of Abraham's children. You have the Abraham's children that come through Isaac. You, you have these kids that come by way of natural birth, by becoming a Jew. Um, but you also have people who come to faith and trust God like Abraham does. And so on the one hand, you have Abraham's sons by lineage or by physical descent. On the other hand, Paul's arguing you have sons because someone trusts God just like Abraham did. You have spiritual sons. You have spiritual daughters who come to faith. And he says this, you know, quoting Genesis 15. We're back in Galatians right now. Um, in verse 8 of chapter 3. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and he told the good news ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. All right? So, so here you have a guy, imperfect, but 75 years old. God says, hey, I want to invite you into a great adventure. Will you trust me? And Abraham says, absolutely. I may be 75 years old, but I'm jumping in with both of my feet. 
Then you have Paul giving a contrast here in verses 10 and following. For those who rely, or all who rely, on the works of law are under a curse, because it's written, everyone who does, who does not continue doing everything written in the book of the law is cursed. And he goes back to talk about justification. Justification means, um, or is the big word for how does someone become right with God? One of the things we looked at last week is you only become right with God by trusting God's provision for you. In fact, to be justified is something that God does to you. It is something that when you trust, God makes you holy, righteous, set apart. He makes you his child, and he gives you then the spirit with which to live. And Paul is essentially arguing in verses 10 and 11 that um, he's quoting some Old Testament scriptures, some Hebrew scriptures here, uh, because part of the covenant that God gave Moses and his descendants was, I want you to engage with me in this covenant. This is a covenant I'm going to make with you and the people of Israel. And keep this covenant, because if you don't keep this covenant, there's going to be a breaking in our relationship. In fact, he says, everyone who does not continue doing everything written in the law is cursed. Now, it is clear, Paul says, that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith. But the law is not based upon faith. The one who, do, who does these things will live by them. And he says this in verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's reminding the Galatians again of how they have been made right with God. You were under a curse, he says. You were under a curse because all have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. There's not one person who can make themselves righteous before God. Whether you are Jew or Greek, you're slave or free, you're male or female, you come to God by one way, and that's God's way. Trusting God's promise, trusting God's Redeemer, the Messiah, Jesus. You're not, we are not, um, justified before God by the law. Now, this doesn't make the law bad. It just makes the law deficient to do what these people thought they, it could do. They couldn't be justified by God before the law because one of the aspects of the law or the teaching that God had given through Moses is that it shows the sinfulness of humanity. Romans 3 reminds us, again, all of sin come in and come short of God's glory in, Roman, in um, verse 13 of Galatians chapter 3, teaches that there is actually a curse upon humanity because of our inability to be righteous before God. But that curse was paid for by Christ. It wasn't merely erased, it was paid for in full. So when we come to this idea of a train, we have this belief. It, it's, it's like saying this, God, I trust you. I trust you and your perfect work to do everything I need to be made right with you. God, there's nothing else that I can do because without you, I am like a train that is just trying to go along, but it has no power. It's, it's stuck. There's, there's really no way a train, except for gravity, you know, one way or the other, there's really no way a train can move much unless you have something to pull or to push it. Abraham believes God. He says, God, I'm going to let you go ahead and be. I'm going to surrender my life. I'm going to yield my life to you. I'm going to trust your promise. I'm going to trust your provision to hopefully pull the train. I got my magnets mixed up. There we go. I think it goes like this. Ah, so much better. It matters which way the magnet goes, by the way. It's been a while since I've played with trains, apparently. Um, 
the idea is this, is that the law has not replaced the promise. In fact, the promise predates the law. The Judaizers are using Abraham as an example of a person who, who lived in accordance with God's teaching, with things like circumcision. And, and of course he did when he was 90 years, 99 years old, and God told him to do that. Um, and that was given to a specific people in a specific time. But in the midst of all of this, he still exhibited faith and trust in God. And Paul is going back to the earlier argument, Abraham, as an example, is someone who believes God. He believes what God has said, and he then chooses, albeit imperfectly, to let God be the engine of his life. One of Paul's central points in the next couple of verses, we won't read them, but verses 15 through 18, is that God's covenant with Abraham existed 430 years. 430 years. It's older than our nation. Prior to the law given to Moses. But while the law given to Moses has important implications for how Israel's supposed to live, it does not make them right before God. The former covenant was written on stone, but there's a new covenant that God has given that comes through the blood of Jesus that will be written upon the heart and it will involve the Spirit to give power for living. When Jesus comes towards the end of his life, and he's about ready to celebrate um, the last Passover with his disciples, he says, I must go so that another person can come. And this is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who's going to guide you into truth. The Spirit is going to be the one who's going to convict you of wrong in your life. The Spirit is going to be the one through whom you will find the greatest blessing as you live for God to the world. In other words, the train of Abraham's life is one that brings blessing, not just to himself but to his descendants, but to the rest of the world. And through the work of his seed, and it has seed here as a singular, and it actually describes who it's saying. Uh, verse uh, 16, the latter part of it, it says, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed. He's talking about a descendant of Abraham who would come and fulfill what God's promise was. And he says, the seed who is Christ. He ties the work of Jesus to what is going on all the way back in the story of God with Abraham. Abraham believed that God could and would redeem his people in the nations. Big point here, Abraham trusts God. He, he doesn't allow the promise to go by. He says, God, you've promised God, however imperfectly, I give my life to you, trusting that you're going to do something that I can't even see. How about you? What is something in God's word that God has promised to you? Like I said before, we live in a time where many days we go, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. We find ourselves in difficult times and we go, God, how am I going to experience peace when there's chaos all around me? God, how are you going to work in this situation? And it comes by trust. It comes by believing God and allowing God to work in ways that sometimes we frankly don't understand. I like to be the second car that likes to take the place of the first car and say, hang on a second, I have a better idea. Let me go ahead and just try to pull God along and make that make sense. 
in my existence. I don't know about you, that's what I like to do. But God sets up things a very specific way. He gives us his spirit because he knows we are completely incapable in and of ourselves to live for God. There's um, a, a show I was watching a little while ago on, uh, online, and it's a show called The Most Dangerous Way to School. <laughs> okay? um, this is a, a photo taken from that show, um, and, and it's um, in Nepal. And these kids, I don't know if you can kind of see it, these kids are climbing uh, a slight hill there, and there's a steel cable that goes across a raging river. And the only way that these kids have to get to school is they have to cross this river. And the only way to cross this river is in a basket that is suspended from this steel cable. I couldn't imagine this. It's ridiculous. Here's a picture of the basket. Now, if you're a little kid, what you do is you climb in the basket and you just kind of stay down and you grab a hold and you pray it doesn't rain and get slippery. If you're an older kid, what you do is you climb on top and you can get so far just by gravity and just by the inertia of pushing off one side. But you get about halfway across this river and what happens is it comes to a lag and it comes to a, a sit still. Um, so what you have to do uh, is you have to, you'll kind of see them up there. They're seated right now. As soon as they get about halfway, what, they, what the older kids end up doing is, is they get up and they start walking on the cable while pushing this basket the rest of the way. Can you imagine going to school like that, kids? Maybe you've heard these stories. When I was your age, I went up one hill and up the hill on the way back and all this kind of stuff about your parents. Many of us probably didn't experience something like this just to go to school, just to get an education, just to better their lives. And it, and it struck me, just by way of simple analogy, there's a lot of times I want to be the person up on the basket and I want to be control, much like an engine, right? The job of the, of the child is to trust the ones above to get you across safely. And there's nowhere else for you to go. God gives us his spirit. And what the spirit does is he gives us power to walk. Galatians 5 will say this, um, Christ has liberated us to set us free. Stand firm then. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. But then he's going to come down in verse 16. He's going to say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. In all the things that you do for God, walk by the Spirit. You can only walk by the Spirit when you've trusted God's gracious gift of salvation. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I encourage you. In fact, I invite you to follow Jesus, to believe what God has said, that there's only one way to a relationship with him, and that's through his son, by believing that Jesus died and rose again and trusting him and him alone. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus here, one of the things you might be doing, much like me sometimes, is you might be trying to drive your own train. What I want to invite you to, what I want to encourage you to, is not to rely upon the things of your life, the good things you do to give you power and wisdom before God. In fact, I want to call you to something very different. I want to call you to begin to practice in a deeper way what it means to hear from God. What it means to hear from God. 
This is what Paul means by walking with the Spirit. To walk with the Spirit means to say, God, what do you want me to do here? God, this is the way that seems right to me, but God, is this what you want me to do? And we struggle with this in our lives because we're very autonomous creatures. We, we, we really want to be in control. We really want to have um, uh, an idea sometimes of even where God is going. But the more we yield to the Spirit in our life, the more we say, God, your desires have to be what drives me. You might be 75, 85, 90 years old today. You might be saying, I'm getting to the end of my life. Can I really do anything for God? And I just want to say, yes, you can. I've got some dear friends um, who, who message my wife and I almost every week, every other week, and they just say, hey, we're praying for you. How can we support you more, even from a distance? There are things you can do, regardless of your age, regardless of your background, to serve God and to serve his kingdom. Maybe that's a ministry of prayer. Maybe that's a ministry of encouragement. There are so many ways. I don't want to guilt you or shame you into anything. What I want to invite you to is to say, God, how would you use me? So maybe you're not 75, 85, or 90, anyone in there. Maybe you're 5, you're 10, you're 15. You're just beginning a certain season of your life. You're learning what it means to believe God and to trust God. I want to say to you, say, God, what do you want to do in my life? I remember when I was a certain age, I had certain things I wanted to do. In fact, my life is comprised of saying, God, I'm never going to do that. And then God says, think again. That's, that's my story, part of my story. I had walls built up where I was like, nope, nope, God, nope, nope. And then God begins to move. It'd be so much easier sometimes if we just said, God, here I am. God, how would you serve me? How would you use me to serve? How would you use me to further your kingdom? How would you use me to share the message of Jesus with my friends, with my siblings, with my family? God, how would you use me to bring blessing to the world? But the thing is this, the blessing is not going to come just because of you. It's going to become because it's going to come because of your willingness to say, God, would you lead me by your spirit? How are we led by the spirit? How do we get into a practice where we can experience that? Maybe that sounds like a difficult thing. It's probably simpler than we think. The psalmist reminds us to be still and to know that I'm God. This week, as you seek to be led by the Spirit, I want to give you just a couple of tips to do that. Take a couple minutes of your day and focus on God. Still yourself away from your phone, from your notifications. Maybe it's going for a walk. If you need to stay active, maybe it's sitting in quiet silence. Use this time to say, God, I don't want to just speak to you. God, I want to hear. Submit yourself to God is what James says in his letter. And he will draw near to you. When we submit ourselves to God and to God's plan and not to our own, it's like we are saying, I'm here for you to speak to me. So take a few moments this week. Submit yourself to God. Ask God to reveal his truth to you and expect the Holy Spirit to reveal that. And then be ready to act upon what he reveals. Now, the amazing thing about this is that God will always be consistent with his word. You know, if God tells you to go rob a candy store, 
um, don't do it. <laughs> it's not consistent with God's word. That's one test. Another test is you go to those fruits of the Spirit in Galatians. Um, whatever is loving, whatever is true, whatever is noble. As God brings things to your mind, as you still yourself before God, ask yourself, all right, are these things in keeping with who the Spirit is and what he produces in people's lives? Reflect on Galatians 5, 22 through 26. Here's something I want to encourage you to do. If you already have a practice of doing this, continue. If you have a practice of doing this, I want to invite you to tell someone else what God is telling you. Say, I think God wants me to do this. Make it that next step. Maybe this is something, stilling yourself before God, which can be a real struggle for many of us. Maybe it's something that's not very consistent for you. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. Would you set yourself before God once a day for five to ten minutes, put everything else away, and just listen? Just listen. Five to ten minutes, just listen. Start there. And be ready to hear what God would like you to do next. It may be, ooh, yeah, I have a broken relationship over there. I need to go mend that. It may be someone, God, someone uh, is brought into your mind by the Spirit, and you say, I'm going to pray for them right now. I'm going to send them a message of encouragement. I cannot tell you how many times people have sent me messages of encouragement on days when I needed them, but I never told anyone I did. Take a few moments this week and make the Spirit the one who drives your train. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616 772 4377.